2: Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Tim Sale, an assistant professor of history at the University of Toronto. We'll be discussing his terrific new book called Enduring Alliance, A History of NATO and the Post-War Global Order. It was published this year by Cornell University Press. NATO is one of those organizations that we hear a lot about every day in the discourse, and the press, But surprisingly, few historians have tackled the organization. Tim Sale corrects this as he looks at NATO from its founding in the 1940s all the way through to the post-Cold War period. Taking his readers to the inside of member state governments, as well as NATO negotiations themselves, Sale shows how NATO wasn't just any international organization – It was, he writes, an instrument of great power politics and the basis for a Pax Atlantica. The book should be of interest to military historians, international historians, Cold War historians, and historians of global governance. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Tim Sale about his fantastic new book called Enduring Alliance, A History of NATO and the Post-War Global Order. Thanks for speaking with us today, Tim. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dexter. Thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you for writing such an interesting book about a topic that historians have surprisingly not done a lot of research on.
1: Oh, thanks. It's um, sort of striking in a way. Um, There are a lot of uh, political science texts on NATO and a lot of uh, journalistic accounts, especially dealing with NATO in the uh, post-Cold War era, a lot of think tank reports from the Cold War And while there are a few major historians who've dealt with NATO from a historical perspective, it really hasn't received the same attention as other aspects of international relations or U.S. foreign policy.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really want to talk about that. Um, But to begin, I, I, I want to ask you how you ended up becoming a historian of NATO.
1: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I am a Canadian by by birth and by background. And one of the funny things about um, NATO is that everyone thinks they know something about it. Um, <laughs> and their their sense of what they know about NATO is often based on their nationality. And so the idea of a student studying NATO in Canada um, at the time was really not exceptional. But I did my PhD at Temple University in uh, Philadelphia and it took some convincing i think um to make the case that NATO was uh, a worthy subject for a dissertation so the path wasn't uh entirely straight uh, or clear so coming from Canada it was just it seems like everybody is writing papers about NATO in undergraduate and graduate school and then in the United States it's often sort of an addendum to another story or a larger story about US foreign policy um but i decided that it was something that combined my interests uh as a at the time a graduate student um and i thought there was room to tackle um some questions and uh something we can talk about a little bit later is that i thought that i would be bringing some new lenses to the study of nato uh i i really expected that this was going to be a transnational history and the research led me in an entirely different direction. So there were surprises all along the way for me.
2: Yeah, I would love to discuss some of those um, surprises or stories from the archive or uh, aha moments. Um, because uh, as, as you mentioned, this was originally a dissertation. Um, so uh, I imagine a lot changed between your original conceptualization of the project and the product that I read over the weekend.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. There are some changes. Um, So one change for me as a as a dissertator or as a as a graduate student writing my dissertation um, had to do with methodologies in a way. I knew I'd be spending a lot of time in archives and I was excited about that. But as a graduate student, you know, one's often thinking about the conversations in the field that they're going to join. Mm -hmm. And I thought NATO, you know, it's often surrounded by this rhetoric and language of transatlanticism, of an Atlantic commonwealth, of these links between uh, often men, but also women involved, their personal links, their cultural links. And so I thought this was going to be a dissertation that looked at uh, or used sort of a transnational concept to understand power politics. and. As I went through the archives, there was some reference to those connections, but I just kept on being overwhelmed by the the national interests and the state interests that were used to uh, justify maintaining the alliance and maintaining individual allies' membership in the alliance. So it started to look to me more and more like, a vehicle, a sort of lowest common denominator of national interests that were all met by NATO as the best way of trying to explain how it continued. And so that took me on a whole different path. But it, by having both ideas in mind, is this a transnational or national interests motivating uh, the maintenance of this alliance? It, it just provided sort of brackets for me to examine my research, um, and, and to carry on, and really think about what I was looking at in these in these records. So that was one big change I I experienced. Um, and intriguingly, it sort of mirrors a debate that happened in the alliance in the first decade, in the especially in the nineteen fifties, where there were people in the United States State Department, for example, who really sensed that the North Atlantic countries. We're coming closer and closer together, not only in the security realm, but also as far as economics and even politics. So there were some true believers in the State Department, if you will, who saw a future for an Atlantic Commonwealth or an Atlantic community. Uh, But at the same time, there were people um, within often these same governments, and I'm speaking specifically here about the U.S. government, who who didn't believe that. And I, I try and trace some of that in the book, as I did in the dissertation that you have different individuals within the same state who think that NATO works for different reasons and think that it will survive for different reasons. Um, so this sort of transnational versus uh, international debate is playing out in governments, um, at least early in the alliance, just as it plays out in our our discipline today.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and were there like any particular archives that helped you or triggered this uh rethinking of the project away from uh thinking in transnational terms to thinking more in uh in national terms well one of the things that was most fascinating for me was that because
1: the alliance has is large i mean it's growing over the Cold War and of course growing after the Cold War there are an enormous number of national archives with holdings related to NATO then there is of course the NATO archives. Um, And then there are personal papers at universities and other places um, of officials who either worked for NATO or worked for their state at NATO. And I found the sort of peculiarity of the alliance is that I would sometimes need to look at four or five different archival collections to understand even a few weeks of diplomacy at NATO. And my, my first bite of the apple here was to think about the Berlin crisis. And I, I devote a whole chapter of the book to to the Berlin crisis. And at the NATO archives, I would find some minutes of a meeting at the Canadian uh, National Archives, Library and Archives Canada. I would find um, an informal copy of the minutes that had some more details. I'd find a briefing note at the American archives. And then I found the, the British archives, the, the Foreign Office, kept brilliant records, and they were also some of the biggest gossips going at sea, so they were often <laughs> able to capture a lot of the personalities and the individuals and in what shaped these meetings so I found often triangulating and and often with more than three sources uh just what exactly happened in nato because the nature of the records kept um varied by who was keeping them i mean this is common for a lot of different uh Approaches to history, but it 's really extreme in the NATO case. I thought the formal documents, the informal documents, the recollections um, and so trying to understand the alliance from a very from a number of different perspectives um, was fascinating, but it also let me see these sort of commonalities emerge uh, over time
2: mm-hmm. and so just so that we're all on the same page, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the origins of NATO. Um, can you tell listeners where NATO comes from what the original motivations were that tied um, you know uh, North America to Western Europe into a formal alliance? Yeah, absolutely it's a great question and it's a it's a, a tricky one and I try and
1: make the case uh, in the book that sort of the basic idea of maintaining peace in Europe, through an American treaty commitment to uh, Western European states, um, you know, dates back to before the Second World War. We have these uh, ideas indeed, uh, draft treaties at the end of the First World War for an American commitment, and, of course, those um, don't come to pass. Um, and so I do spend some time trying to understand just what motivates these uh, states to ally, um, at the end of the 1940s. Um, and and I'll explain that in a sec, but I want to say that thinking through what happens in the late 1940s was extremely instructive for me in thinking through why generation after generation of diplomats, presidents, and prime ministers thought NATO uh, needed to be maintained. So I think the origin story is extremely important because it also helps explain the maintenance um, story why NATO continues and then why NATO survives the end of the Cold War. And what's happening, of course, in the late 1940s are a series of crises, um, the uh, coup in Prague in Czechoslovakia, later the Berlin airlift. The tensions at this time are are so high um, that there's obviously concern in Western Europe and in the United States about Soviet intentions, but whether the Soviets are trying to expand their influence and control into Western Europe. But what I think is key to realize is that they're not necessarily talking about invasion. They're not talking about the Red Army rolling West uh, into Western Europe. They're really worried about the political influence of the Soviet Union in the Western Europe, and possibly uh, indigenous communist groups in Western Europe, taking on policies uh, that either separate them from uh, their neighbors and and possibly join them more closely with the Soviet Union. And there's uh, sort of the untold story, I think, or one of the most important examples of what's happening here has to do with two two states that are. are don't often receive a lot of attention in our in our histories of the early Cold War, and they're Finland and Norway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the Soviets uh, come to an agreement with Finland. Uh, it's going to give us this this phrase later, Finlandization. Uh, this idea that. Finland will develop its own domestic policies, but that its foreign and defense policy um, is really sort of subcontracted or, or, or contracted to the Soviet Union. Um, that the Soviets influenced the Finnish role in the world, and in the in the late 1940s, the Norwegian government expects uh, and and uh, is told essentially that the Soviet Union is going to make uh, one of these. Uh, offer one of these deals that the Norwegians poss- couldn't possibly refuse. <laughs> um, and, and the Norwegians approach um, the Americans, the British, and the Canadians um, in a plea for help, really, in a in a plea for the need for, for states to work together so that, um, you know, we'll have this phrase later in the Cold War, that these states aren't susceptible to salami tactics. They're not going to be sliced off one by one by... Um, By not a Soviet invasion again, but sort of the threat of Soviet force or uh, uh, bullying or blackmail, if you will. So there's the sense that the states of Western Europe need to combine and that they need to be supported by uh, the United States. And it's Ernest Bevin, the British foreign secretary at the time, who is going to be the most important in making a proposal for some sort of union. Uh, or a great security agreement to bring the United States into this emerging Western European security architecture. And sort of the last thought on this that I think is, is so crucial is that Bevan explains in his case to the Americans um, that this looks to him like the late 1930s. And uh, I don't think this is an overwrought comparison. His point was that the balance of power in Europe could shift as a result of these salami tactics as European states were one by one sort of added to um, or came under Soviet influence. The balance of power in Europe could shift so much that the Americans and the British decided that war was the only option um, for them to maintain uh, their interests in Western Europe. And that's something that carries on, uh, this sort of argument carries on over decade after decade.
2: Yeah, that, that was uh, one of the uh, striking things about your book the role of history and historical memory in um, how the organization operated. Um, uh, you know, thinking about like the lessons of the 1930s, but then also um, just looking at all of the personnel that, um, you know, were uh, leading the Allied forces in D Day. And then, you know, in the 1950s, they're running NATO. You You really situate the historical actors in your book um, in their own history and in their own historical memories. And I thought that was, uh, um, that was really useful.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I mean, it it is an interesting, uh, it has an interesting problem in that these uh, people who create NATO and then do so much to maintain it, believe the Alliance is necessary because of their experience in war. But their worry going forward is that generations to come who didn't live through first the second World War uh, and then other events won't understand why the alliance is necessary. So there's this ongoing fear in the alliance that a new generation just won't get it. And um, it's fascinating to me because this carries on into even more recent periods where um, Robert Gates, the United States Secretary of Defense, in in a major speech. Warns about a new generation that didn't live through the Cold War, not understanding why NATO was important. So there's this fascinating um, tension in in these individuals between their lived experience and their understanding of why the alliance is necessary. And then their fear that generations after just won't get it.
2: Mm -hmm. But what's really striking about that is that that almost leads into... Uh, almost like a an anti-democratic uh, sensibility, where the, the 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 really big fear is that um, you know these citizens the, um, you know living in dem- democratic states in Western Europe aren't actually going to vote for uh, you know all of the expenses that um, NATO requires. Um, they're not going to uh, consider. They're not going to continue their support of you know the United States military having such vast um, you know outlays in Western Europe. And they and some of your NATO leaders even try to think about how they can like insulate NATO from those democratic majorities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is one thing that I liked, um, sort of grappling with during the project, is that NATO is often referred to as an alliance of democracies, um, or are an argument that because most of the states were democratic, this gave the alliance some life. And in, in, in very broad, general terms, uh, you know, there may there's something to this, and I don't want to uh, ignore it entirely. But I really do. I really did come to the conclusion that the greatest challenge to NATO and to keeping the alliance going uh, was at the ballot box, and and trying to ensure. Um, that states uh, that leaders weren't pushed by their public either in elections or through other sort of general political pressure um, to stop paying for defense, to leave the alliance, um, to give in to these possible Soviet demands that that allied leaders were worried about time and time again. Uh, and this is yeah closely connected to that idea of generational change and that voters won't understand why the alliance is necessary. And the I, I really struggled or, or debated whether to bring in the concept and phrase balance of power when I was describing why NATO was necessary, because it's often sort of, you know, associated with uh, other centuries, previous centuries, and a sort of old school approach to uh, international relations. But um, it's useful here, I think, because the leaders of the allied states were concerned about the balance of power, but the thing that would shift the balance of power in the second half of the 20th century wasn't invasions or the conquering of territory so much as changing political alignments. So you have democracy in the 20th century being uh, a major, uh, we don't even have to say threat, but a major factor in Affecting the alignment of the balance of power on the continent, and the allied leaders were very, very sensitive to this.
2: Do you have a, a particular example of NATO leaders being anti-democratic or trying to insulate NATO from uh, democratic demands? Well,
1: I think the the phrasing is important here, and I mean, just for the sake of of discussion and argument, I'll push back against anti-democratic and say instead that the leaders were just very very sensitive to the limits on their policy imposed by um, politics um, democracy especially and you know the idea of voting and changing governments and so uh one key example here would be the growing emergence of the european it's not the emergence of the economic Community in Europe, but the growing power of the European Economic Community in the 1970s, the the size and uh, the strength of, of trade within Europe, and and President Richard Nixon and uh, Henry Kissinger's fear that um, trade disputes with Europe would cause congressmen and uh, congresspeople in the United States um, to. Push back against the Europeans uh, by limiting their commitment to NATO. So, that would be one example of how um, sort of democratic institutions could be involved in a dispute that would lead uh, to the end of NATO.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, I I just want to take a step back and talk about the role of crisis in your book and in the broader history of NATO. Um, Because what your book really does show is. just like the the never the seemingly never ending series of um crises that um NATO um experienced uh and um at times the the whole western alliance um seems rather precarious um you know you have like the intra alliance um conflicts um you have you know between like the the french and um the us um but then you also have you know as we've talked about the problem of popular legitimacy Um, And then, of course, there's, you know, the Cold War rivalry with um, the Soviet Union. And so uh, I was wondering if you could just sort of um, expand on the role of crisis um, in your narrative.
1: Sure. Yeah, you're right. There are all sorts of crises that affect uh, NATO. Um, Some of these crises, the crises between allies, revolve around debates about just what the alliance is for even if the allied leaders are all agreed that it's um, necessary to keep the alliance together to protect really fundamental security interests at different times throughout the cold war different states have ideas as to how nato can also help them with their other problems um, whether it's dealing with the collapse of their empire um, uh, or other things so in some ways some of these crises come from Trying to uh, use NATO to accomplish national interests that other allies aren't interested in. Um, Charles de Gaulle, the the French uh, issue has to do um, with. France um, a French policy to assert leadership in Europe but also to maintain a government amidst um, national crises in France like in Algeria and so NATO becomes sort of a useful um, punching bag um, for for the French and in, in the way that I'd, I'd argue Donald Trump uses NATO as a punching bag now to sort of drum up support um, for himself sort of separate from any real concerns about nato and then yes there are these these crises um and showdowns with the soviet union Uh, and the the one i spend the most time on is is berlin it's really the one that shows the precarity of the alliance i think because the allies were not all agreed on the value of fighting um for berlin Uh, and that creates quite a bit of bitterness in the Alliance in the early 1960s. And I, I think it's a real marking point um, for the Allies in, in thinking about just what the Alliance is is for and what it can be. Um, and it's going to remain uh, a basic tool for maintaining the balance of power. And it's not going to be a vehicle for Atlantic community or Commonwealth.
2: So I want to zoom in on something that you just mentioned, um, which is uh, the collapse of empire. So when NATO was founded, like there weren't just nation states, there were also empires. And so what was the relationship between NATO and empire, NATO and decolonization, and the problems that um, empire posed for NATO? Right. Well, they're very thorny, and they're thorny
1: right from the beginning. Um, even though it's Harry Truman's uh Democratic administration uh, that's in power at the signing of the treaty and during the negotiation, there's a bipartisan consensus to go with NATO. And and John Foster Dulles, who's later Eisenhower's secretary of state, um, plays a role in in moving the treaty through the Senate. And and part of his efforts that are going to have important implications later on are convincing the Senate uh, and Americans that NATO is not... A tool for maintaining and upholding empire. And he believes this personally, but he also believes this politically in that he doesn't think the United States um, will support a treaty organization, a treaty, and then a treaty organization that's job is maintaining empire. He doesn't think the American people will support that. And he also comes to grow worried that if NATO becomes too closely associated with uh, empire, that's going to reflect badly on the United States in their sort of global Cold War, and that if if NATO comes to appear to be an instrument of empire, it's going to push non-NATO states uh, closer to to the Soviet Union, uh, which which you know spent so much energy and rhetoric um, championing uh, the end of empire. So empire is twisted up in the alliance from the very beginning. Um, it's complicated, however, because uh, even the uh, Algerian departments of France are initially included in the treaty and then later removed. So empire is going to be a major, major issue for the alliance in the 1950s uh, and sort of culminating in the, the Suez crisis. Uh, one thing that I was very surprised to learn when I write about is that there had been some sort of Inklings or rumblings about whether NATO would have a role in uh opening or maintaining um, the opening of the Suez canal there's some rumblings in the State Department, and even President Eisenhower says something about uh NATO possibly having a role uh in the suez crisis but but very quickly John Foster Dulles uh attitude takes control here, and there's a decision really clear decision in the u s that nato can't be associated with uh with this this major and uh end of empire showdown uh with with Egypt in nineteen fifty six uh and it's in this period sort of nineteen fifty six to nineteen sixty that Eisenhower and Dulles um recognized that NATO must stay away um from these allies who are trying to maintain their empires, be it the French, be it the Belgians in the Congo, how uh, the Belgians try and argue that some of their air bases in Congo are NATO air bases, um, trying to pull the alliance into supporting their efforts there. Um, but that's the decision made. And it's fascinating, of course, because it gets flipped in the 1960s when the United States... Um, comes to be embroiled deeper and deeper in in Vietnam and looks to NATO allies for support and now the tables have turned um now the Europeans are the ones who don't want extra European involvement for the alliance.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. And so uh moving on uh just a little bit um I but also uh, on uh, a relatively similar theme I was really struck by how despite the peace in Europe, uh, despite how bloodless um, uh, you know the the Cold War was in europe um it was um unbelievably um contentious and uh, you know we know from historians of the global cold war um, that this period was obviously very you know deadly um, but it was deadly in mostly you know asian and uh, um, and other non european geographies. Did NATO leaders ever consider the asymmetry of violence between the European continent and the third world it's a it's an odd question or a big question but i was hoping you could um say something about that
1: yeah absolutely well so it's a fascinating question um and there are a few different uh, sort of uh, elements to this um one is that initially there's talk of this in the late 1940s and of course in the 1950s is that there needs to be Uh, more NATO's, right? There needs to be more alliance systems to keep the peace uh, elsewhere in the world. So in some ways, there's, there's an argument falls away after about a decade in the 1950s. But this argument that uh, this type of solution that's working in Europe is what's needed elsewhere. Um, and that's resisted uh, elsewhere in the world for a number of reasons. And it's also resisted by NATO allies, who um, some of whom are quite unwilling to get mixed up in what seem like uh, n- imperial efforts uh, abroad. Um, but what I think is crucial a little bit later on in the Cold War is that especially American presidents come to recognize that maintaining NATO – and thus maintaining peace in Europe gives them power elsewhere in the world. Richard Nixon sort of puts this very clearly when he says that NATO gives the United States, uh, or gives him as president, a diplomatic wallop. Because he's not worrying about uh, the outbreak of war in in Europe, he's able to direct his attentions to his diplomacy with the Soviet Union, And with the People's Republic of China, and he makes this case to um, members of Congress. He says we need to keep maintain NATO because uh, peace in Europe lets us exercise our power elsewhere in the world. And the sort of fascinating corollary to that is that in the last year, in 2019, um, as there have been more and more calls. For an appraisal of NATO or a reappraisal of NATO, there are some that argue one of the reasons that the United States should uh, detach itself from NATO is that the peace in Europe and especially the NATO American NATO bases in Europe make it too easy for the Americans to exercise power abroad, and and it has led, uh, in their view, um, to. Mistakes and 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 an ease of action uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan that wouldn't be available to the United States uh, if they didn't have these these bases uh, in Europe and I think you could extend that to say if they didn't have the sort of uh, sense that that Europe was was under control, uh, if you will. So so yes, there's a connection between NATO and global affairs and there's a connection between nato and what the united states especially is able to do abroad Um, and other allies too right the nato allowed france in the early cold war to um, send much larger troop deployments to indochina and then to algeria than they would if they were maintaining uh, defensive positions along the franco-german border so there are connections, but we have to sort of step back to see them. They're not always explicit in the records.
2: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And there's a, just another, um, uh, I guess, maybe I'll call it a paradox in, in your book, which is the support for NATO seems to be challenged when Cold War relations thaw. Right. So basically when when uh, relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union Um, are good, or at least better, uh, there is a pretty big existential fear within NATO that that will actually reduce support for NATO. So I think at a certain point in the book, you say that um, NATO was a victim of its own success. Um, Can you elaborate on this dynamic? Sure absolutely
1: yeah a bunch of times during the Cold War, NATO officials and leaders are wondering if they've put themselves out of business, yeah. <laughs> whether they've made it seem like they're no longer necessary and it's not so much that they think this is a bad thing um but they're not sure that they are unnecessary, and uh you're exactly right, this happens at a few different points. And quite often during these thaws in the Cold War, uh, what I was surprised to see in the records of NATO conversations between allies was um, concern that these thaws were really Soviet traps. And there's a, a Soviet smile in the 50s, the detente of the late 60s. Um, this this wonder and concern that possibly this the thaw with the Soviet Union is... Um, is designed or will have the consequence of breaking up the alliance and it's and being done purposefully by by the Soviet Union. So that fear never goes away. It doesn't even go away with the end of the Soviet Union. and And part of the reason is that this goes back to the power politics argument and the balance of power is that these officials don't think that NATO is essential only because of the communist ideology of the Soviet Union, or only because they're worried that Germany will, as one official said, return to the bottle. But because they, they believe there are realities of power politics and that um even without the ideology, uh without NATO there would still be um scrambles for power within Europe and NATO helps uh keep keep a lid on that. Mm-hmm. So this idea that NATO's put itself out of business is is a major concern. But as one uh, British ambassador um, writes in the 1970s, every time NATO gets itself in trouble, the Russians come along and bail out NATO. <laughs> um, so the British often refer to the Ru- uh, the Soviets as Russians. But this also carries on after the Cold War. A great example is the Suez Crisis of 1956. Uh, animosity within the alliance. Uh, And, you know, almost instantaneously, Soviet armor rolls in to Hungary and reminds the Western Europe, Western Europeans of uh, what the Soviets um, are willing to do um, to maintain their influence on the continent. So uh, that's one uh, good example. but. Russian action in uh, in Crimea and the Ukraine, um, you know, seems to be another example of uh, NATO being at a bit of a loss, trying to wonder what its uh, uh, purpose and viability was, and all of a sudden, um, actions directed by Moscow sort of sharpening uh, the focus of NATO leaders again on the alliance's importance.
2: Uh, I really appreciated, um, at the end of the book, how you reflected on some of the more recent history. But before we get there, uh, I I want to discuss uh, one of the episodes in your book that I found to be um, really dramatic and also um, your explanation to be um, really uh, compelling, um, and that's about why NATO survives the Cold War. Um, So, you know, NATO was assembled, um, as you've already mentioned, uh, in, in the context of a rivalry with the Soviet Union. But it seems to, uh, you know, it survives the Cold War, it survives the Soviet Union. And in many ways, it actually expands. Can you talk about this, this moment, this transition? Sure, absolutely. So this, uh,
1: the end of the Cold War and NATO's survival, but also NATO's expansion is the focus of an enormous amount of scholarship right now. Um, by, by political scientists and also a number of pundits are weighing in on this, of, of course, because of the tensions in um, the region. And so there's there's quite a lot of work being done here, which is very exciting. But what I tried to do in the book was to try and put these events within the sort of broader historical perspective of NATO um, to see how NATO had essentially faced similar crises Before faced concerns about its future before and how they were applied at the end of the Cold War. And then also how policymakers applied their own historical reasoning to NATO, the need to maintain NATO at uh, the end of the Cold War. And so there are uh, a few different interlocking pieces here. One is the um, growth of what's going to become the European Union. Uh, There is a a sense in in Washington that uh, European Union, what's going to become the European Union, is going to expand into Europe. And because of the close links between European NATO allies and these new members of the uh, economic community, there'll be sort of a de facto obligation to protect these states uh, anyway. And so better to do it within NATO. And that's something that dates back to Nixon and Kissinger's worries in the early 1970s uh, um, about sort of Europe's relation with the United States, a growing Europe's relation with the United States. Um, The second factor is that even if the Berlin Wall falls and then later the Soviet Union itself is going to, um, we use the word collapse, but of course, even if the Soviet Union collapses into constituent pieces, there is still an enormous number of soldiers, tanks, and nuclear weapons to the east of nato so again pol- American policymakers don't think that power politics is going to uh disintegrate just because the Soviet Union has come apart into pieces and then uh, two more concerns: one is the future of germany there There are still major concerns in amongst the uh, Western European states about what uh, Germany's role will be after uh, the end of the Cold War, especially once it's unified. This is an enormously powerful state in some ways. Um, And it's okay for the other Europeans that Germany is powerful because it is a part of NATO and all of the constraints that puts on the German military. But NATO's continuation continues to... um, give Germany a home, uh, a security home, and lessen the fears of its allies. And then the, the the final point here, the historical thinking, is what is going to happen to these uh, states that were a part of the Warsaw Pact, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. And what's fascinating here is that memo after memo written by National Security Council staffers in Washington Go back to the late 19th century and trace European history up through to the Second World War uh, and consider how this region of Europe and this sort of uh, fragile alliances built there over time um, played a role in war coming to Europe. Essentially, they're asking, now that these states are separated from the Soviet Union, where will they look for their security? And so already in the sort of uh, very ashes of the Cold War comes this logic of expanding NATO to include um, those states so that they're not rebuilding a sort of rickety alliance system that policymakers, uh, in their understanding of history, see as having led to war in Europe in the past.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that really surprised me in your book, and uh, maybe this comes from my own ignorance of the literature, is how NATO expansion uh, was already being considered and being carried out under the Bush administration. Um, it, it wasn't until the, um, it wasn't just the, the Clinton administration that um, sort of launched the expansion. And uh, you, you have some, just, some really interesting documents from um, Brent Scott scowcroft and robert gates about um their their reasoning and uh, and so on and one of the things that struck me was how they were considering again the democratic majorities in western europe being opposed to um u.s uh, military architecture and so they they saw eastern europe as a potential um, a, a really um, useful potential site for um, military bases that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, they would be able to purchase uh, um, these bases on the cheap um, and they'd be able to station um, troops uh, and so on. Yeah. And, and that's just something that I uh, had no idea about. So um, I was glad to to learn about it.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, it's, a, it's fascinating because I, I try and make the case that the logic for expansion is... Apparent in those years, yet the primary goal regarding NATO and, and Eastern Europe in, in in this period for the Bush administration is making sure that the Soviets leave. Um, and if they were to too loudly or publicly discuss uh, NATO expansion or the logic of this expansion, they were worried that uh, the Soviets might throw on the brakes, might be much less willing to start moving their troops out of the Warsaw Pact seat, so they're playing a very careful game. Um, They are very careful not to say very much in public and not even in private to make any sort of commitment about expanding NATO, but you're right, there are so many cases being made for just how um, this makes sense, how the expansion makes sense from a strategic perspective. Mm
2: -hmm. And so as we're uh, approaching the end of our conversation, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the more recent history. <clears throat> so, um, the question that I would like to pose to you is: How would a knowledge, or how should a knowledge of NATO, um, inform contemporary discussions about security, about alliances, about international organizations? And this is something that we've, that you've already um, gestured to uh, a little bit about um, so far. But I'd like a, maybe a, a bit more of an expansion on it. Sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there, I mean, I try and make a bit of a case and I try and be provocative here and argue that there is real continuity between the post-Cold War world and the Cold War world for NATO. And I think that's true. But at the same time, there are differences. Um, and and some of those have to do with the roles that NATO takes on um, and the deployment to Afghanistan is a real primary example of this. Um, what's, what's so fascinating about the coast post-Cold War world is that the restraints, the handcuffs are off NATO when it comes to out-of-area operations. There's no more worry about pushing states into the embrace of Moscow, into the embrace of communist ideology. And so so many of the restraints on NATO are gone in the post-Cold War world. And so I think there'd be real value in thinking, again, about the value of those restraints, of um, keeping NATO's focused. But I think the the biggest takeaway from this series of of repeated crises and worries about whether the alliance would survive uh, is that if, if officials and governments today think that NATO serves a purpose, they need to do a better job of explaining to their citizens why they support the alliance. Um, and, and time and time again, uh, during the Cold War, officials are so frustrated that their citizens don't understand why NATO is important or why there needs to be nuclear weapons um, deployed in in Europe. And I, I tell a story at one point of the British officials just trying to understand some antipathy towards NATO and nuclear weapons, both in Europe and in the United Kingdom. And... and uh, you have to give them great respect because they recognize and they realize that they just hadn't done a very good job of explaining to their citizens why they'd conducted these policies for decades. So I think in the last year or so, um NATO has done uh NATO the institution has done um uh, much more to be uh, visible, to be publicly visible. But I think that it falls upon NATO and then its its governments, uh, allied governments, to find ways to keep uh, NATO in the minds of their citizens and explain uh, just what's happening. Because it's the inclination of every generation to, of course, hope that uh, peace is a default condition and that we've moved beyond power politics. But time and time again. You know, generation after generation of leaders has looked at all of the intelligence, they've looked at world affairs and they've decided that a defense alliance like this is necessary uh, and it will be a lot easier to keep it in place if they can convince their public of that, uh, that need.
2: Wonderful. And so I think that's a great place to leave our conversation um, of your book, but I was hoping that you could perhaps share with our listeners what you're working on right now. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um,
1: one project also coming out with Cornell University Press, it's going to be published in, in September. Uh, this is something I've worked on with um, a few other uh, historians, uh, Jeffrey Engel and Hal Brands and and William Inwood. And, and what we did with some others was interview 28 uh, members of the, the George W. Bush White House about the decision to surge troops into Iraq, uh, the decisions made in 2006, and the troops are are surged in 2007. So I, I took these 28 interviews that are each about 75 pages long and organized them into uh, eight chapters of uh, sort of readable oral history that take readers through the debates and the arguments and the policy making that ultimately led to the surge. And then had a number of political scientists and historians uh, analyze these transcripts as well, and their their analysis is included in the book. So this was um, famously Condoleezza Rice called this the last card in the deck. So this book coming in September from Cornell is called uh, The Last Card Inside George W. Bush's Decision to Surge in Iraq. So that's um, coming soon, and it's been a really exciting project, and I'm now moving To uh, a study of American, British, and Canadian intelligence uh, analysis and sharing during the Cold War.
2: Wow. I look forward to both of those projects. Uh, And I want to thank you for our conversation today. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Dexter. I really enjoyed it. Of course. And you've been listening to New Books in History.